happy Halloween Eve, darling. Happy Halloween Eve. And happy belated birthday by the time this comes out. Thank you. And happy Eve of our two-year anniversary of the podcast. Oh, my God. That's so many things. This is the best time of the year, Monique. It's so many. (laughs) Fuck Christmas. I'm going to say it. Halloween. Fuck Christmas. Halloween all day or day. Again, (laughs) it's not a holiday. It's a fucking lifestyle. Uh, I love Halloween. Ah, I love Halloween. I love you more, though, and I'm very excited that it's your birthday. I'm very sad that I'm not going to get to spend your birthday with you. Thank you. That's okay. Are you doing anything fun? Do you have any fun plans? Not particularly. (laughs) Damn it. This is where I would have come in handy. You absolutely would have come in handy for this moment. God damn it. (laughs) So this is the thing. My birthday is on October 29th. Odd and Prime. Fuck yeah. And... (laughs) Oh my God, I love you. You nerd. <laughs> I'm so fucking lonely. That was so hot. I can't even tell you. Like, sploosh, magoosh over here. <laughs> Moni. <laughs> Only I would be that excited about an odd and prime number. <sighs> I know. That's why you're my psychic, <laughs> my psychic soul sister. So the thing is, once every six years, my birthday falls on a Saturday, like this year. And there's when your birthday falls on a Saturday, there's this like pressure that it needs to be like a fucking rager because it's a Saturday and people are available. However, so one, there's that. However, there's also the fact that when my birthday falls on a Saturday, because it's two days away from Halloween, everyone uses that day as their Halloween. So it's kind of like never my favorite when my birthday falls on a Saturday because I'm competing with Halloween and no one's available because they're going to Halloween parties or... Or like, you know, my favorite spots in the city are not open because they're blocked off for Halloween shit. And I'm like, so I think it's just going to be like a chill, look cute, drink some champs, and then go home, maybe kiss a boy or two. Ooh, okay. One, that sounds great. Two, uh, that's what (laughs) I thought too. And then I blacked out. So you never know, (laughs) man. Oh, that is true. I did contribute to the blacking out. That is true. Uh, It was my favorite. She put me in a yellow cap. Was not expecting that. (laughs) was way too drunk to handle it for the record. That's right. It was amazing. I will never forget that. Although I forgot most of it. Sparkling sangria. It was amazing. <laughs> it's, it was so good. Up until the yellow cab, I remember. Yes. <laughs> Got a little fuzzy after that. You know what? Incidentally, me fucking too. Because the rest of my day continued and I don't remember a fucking thing about it. Let me fucking tell you. <laughs> The sangrias were so good. I described them to somebody as blackout good the other day because I was like, is there any other term for it? Like, that's what happened. No. And they were delicious. That's accurate. Yes. Slow clap for the Smith's sangrias in New York City. Uh, They're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. Life-changing for sure. (laughs) Uh, Have you done anything fun in the past week since I've talked to you? Watched anything interesting? Give me some like... Give me some goss. I don't know. A couple. Yeah, I've, I've done a bunch of shit. I was in Disney World this weekend. Fun. Which was very exciting. Back to Florida. <laughs> Back to Florida. Our home our home state. Yay. Our home state. <laughs> I did have pub subs. You got to. <gasps> okay, now I'm jealous. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Publix Lemonade. Did you do it? Did you do the... I've actually never had a Publix Lemonade, but I'm certain it's magnificent because everything in Publix is magnificent. <laughs> Oh my God. I wish everyone had been able to see how dramatic my reaction was 
to Monique telling me she has never had Publix lemonade. I could it seems accurate, demolish a half gallon of that in like less than three seconds. I'm pretty sure. It's so good. I mean, everything is Publix amazing. So obviously, obviously. Yes. So Disney Publix sub. Yeah. So every year I go to Disney with Nellie and Donna in the fall so that we can have the Venn diagram of Epcot Food and Wine, also affectionately known as Drink Around the World, and Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. That's perfect. Which is the only time that adults are allowed to dress up in Disney. Oh, shit. And we don't fuck around with the costumes. We always It's always very thought out. We do a group costume. The last time we went, which was three years ago because of the fucking Rona, uh, we went as Alice in Wonderland, and that kind of broke Disney. And this year we went as the Tremaines. <laughs> I've seen the pictures. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. You did a fantastic job. Thank you. So we went as the Tremaines, which is Cinderella's stepfamily. So Lady Tremaine, Donna was Lady Tremaine, which is Cinderella's stepmother, and then the two stepsisters, the ugly stepsisters. <gasps> and so it was a lot of fun posing in all the pictures with like the most ugly face <laughs> in every picture. But what was really funny is that Nellie had set up a surprise for me and Donna. <gasps> And apparently, unbeknownst to me, I psychic, like psychic sister. No, of course you did. The surprise. Because your powers are amazing and we bow down to you. We are not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about all that. So we have a friend uh, named Chantel, who I've mentioned on the podcast, Chantel in Orlando. Yes. Hey, hey, girl, guy, love you. Uh, they listen to the podcast. I'm obsessed with them and they're wonderful human beings. And Chantel, like they're just, they're both wildly attractive people. And if that's not enough, like the nicest, loveliest human beings you will ever meet in your life. Like it's, it's kind of fucked up, but they are. And she got married at, they got married rather at Disney several years ago. When I say she's legitimately a Disney princess, she actually, like Disney used her wedding pictures in their like Instagram account to be like, you two can marry your own prince and have your dreams come true and pre- be a princess and shit. Because this is legitimately, they're like legitimately, I tell her that rodents dress her in the morning. She's legitimately a Disney princess. I feel like you also showed me these photos and yes. that is an accurate description. I was like, oh my God, I would marry this woman in an instant. Like what? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I don't remember this because also I was working on an hour of sleep. But apparently I started talking about her at the airport in JF or in LaGuardia heading to, to Disney. So I just like started talking about her and there was just like a lot of like touch points of like, I just kept thinking about her. Yeah. Just like, like, I just like thinking about her and like, I have this bag and I was like, I think she has this bag. And I was like, you know, who would have been great? Like Chantel Orlando would have been great because she's like actually Cinderella and she would have been great like to be like part of this, like of our costume and what, and it's just like nonstop that this is like, because so how Mickey's not so scary Halloween party works is that it's a second ticket. It's a separate ticket, of course, because they charge you non fucking stop for Disney. And so the park closes early and people with the, the Mickey's not so scary Halloween party ticket go in early and they, they have a different wristband. They're given like trick or treat bags and you go like trick or treating throughout like the park and shit. And then you have your costumes, whatever. And they do like different shows, like special like hocus pocus shows and shit and, and all different things like specifically for the event. So we're, we already get there kind of late. We get there at like seven 30 instead of seven o'clock and we're in front of the castle and there's like this hocus pocus show happening and like fireworks. And I'm like, and 
Nelly is like in the crowd, like, and I'm like, what the fuck is she? Like, who gives a fuck about the show? Let's go to Haunted Mansion. Let's go to some fucking rides. What the fuck? <laughs> and she's very like, you know, Nelly's a woman on a mission. And then I'm just like very confused. And then all of a sudden, there's Chantel dressed as Cinderella <gasps> and Orlando dressed as the prince. No. Because for two months, they conspired that they were going to surprise us as Cinderella and the prince and that we were all going to go as a group. Oh my God, I love that. And so, and it was amazing. I love when a surprise comes together. You know this about me. Like, oh. It was so great. It was so great. But so I end up later telling Nellie being like, oh, you know, I feel like I psychically felt her because I was like thinking about her and all these things. And Nellie goes, no, you were talking about her at the airport to the point that I texted Chantel being like, did you, does Mo know that you're, that you guys are going? <laughs> you're like, no, I'm fucking psychic, bitch. And she's like, no, it's like, because she's fucking talking about you. <laughs> psychic, bitch. Oh my God. I love this. That's so sweet. I'm really happy for you. Yeah. It was so fun. Oh, they're so lovely. That's wonderful. Okay. I have to see these pictures. Oh my God. You're like not emotionally prepared. They're so good. No, I'm never emotionally prepared. Monique. For any of your pictures. Let's be real. <laughs> I mean, girl, you know, I fucking try. I, I mean, I do have pictures like quarterly, so <laughs> I got to make them good. <laughs> and he posts on the gram. But um, I will say I saw the first episode of The Midnight Club, <gasps> which is Mike Flanagan's latest outing. Oh, my God. Are you watching it? It's so good. I binged all of it. <laughs> I finished it. Oh, Okay. It took me all week. I like watched a little bit each day, but yeah, Johnny threw it on and then he was like, yeah, I kind of like threw this on. It was really good. And I want you to watch it. And so, yeah, that's kind of what I did in my free time all week. Monique, I'm so happy. I had a moment where I was like, did we talk about this already? Like, I feel like we would have, because I know you love Mike Flanagan and everything else he's done. No. But I was like, I can't remember her talking about this. Because I had, because I literally had forgotten about it until Orlando when we were in Orlando, look at that, was like, hey, have you seen Midnight Club? That's the new like Mike Flanagan. I was like, is it out? He's like, yeah, girl. I was like, fuck. And he's like, I really like it. So I watched The Watcher first, which the first episode I was like, mm. I mean, but I do know like half of the people in it just because I move in the same circles as them, oddly, when you're an actor. But um, and I was kind of like, mm, okay, because I got lots of text messages from people being like, the watcher's super fucked up. And I was like, this isn't like calling to me. And I had seen the trailer for the Midnight Club and I was not that into it because of how much spookiness is in it. But then when I watched the first episode and I realized the context with which that exists, it I was like, okay, we're fine. Yes. I'm into this because I thought it was like, Mike, are you fucking just doing like bullshit like pop-up scares and shit. Like, what the fuck is this? He did not. Mike knows what fucking time it is. No. And if they do, they'll like call it out, I feel like, as like because of the format of the show. Right. It like it totally makes sense how, like, why these things are a thing. And I was like, okay, okay. Yes. But I saw the first episode and I love it so far. And I also love how he reuses actors and it's always fun to like be like which, which other Mike Flanagan joint were you in so yeah that's the only thing the only two things I've watched are the first episodes of The Watcher and Midnight Club but I think I'm gonna stick with Midnight Club 
before finishing The Watcher. I'm absolutely going to. Please do, because we need to gush about it together. I I really enjoyed it. And I thought of you the whole time. I was like, Monique would love this. And I hope she watched at least some of it so we can talk about it this week. I love that. Good. I also agree, though, that the trailer like totally threw me. I didn't even get what the show was about when I watched the trailer. Just don't watch the trailer and just like go into the show blind. It's amazing. Yeah, I agree. Because I watched the trailer and then they did this thing where they're like, from the producers of Haunting of Hill House. And I was like, okay, wait, is this like, are you doing that sneaky fucking thing? Because when Coraline came out, for instance, no, it wasn't Coraline. No, when Monkey Bone, that horrendous fucking movie came out, they're like, from the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh my God, with Brendan Fraser? Yes, yes. That movie sucks. Sorry, it does. So all the advertisements were from the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. And the thing is, people don't realize Tim Burton did not direct The Nightmare Before Christmas. (gasps) He wrote it and he produced it. Someone else directed it. What? I don't think I realized that. So they they basically got like advertising and promotion. No one fucking does. That's the only reason they got anybody to see this fucking movie. Oh my God, Monique. I had no idea. So in the trailer for The Midnight Club, they pull this shit and I was like, this doesn't look like a Mike Flanagan joint. And I was like, are you fucking pulling this shit? <laughs> but then I looked and I was like, okay, no. Okay. Okay. Fool me once. You're not fucking doing this bullshit to me. Nope. No, but the first episode, don't watch the trailer. The trailer's the trailer's not correct. It, it's, it's not. Yes. Don't watch it. The first episode is wonderful. And I'm very much looking forward to watching the whole thing because I just love Mike Flanagan so much. And he just gets, he just has like a direct line to my horror heart. I love that. That's really sweet. Well, I think you'll really like the rest of this. I bet. And I can't wait. I'm so, one, I'm so pumped that you saw this before me. I, rare, I know. That you're into this. And that I finished it, Monique. Even rarer. Let's be real. <laughs> yes. I'm fully aware of who I am as a person. <laughs> that is a person who does not finish shows or movies. And I can't wait to talk to you about it. Oh my God, how exciting. But you gotta you gotta actually watch Midnight Mass at some point. Kind of soon. I know. I know. I will. I told you what happened, but I'll I will do it. There was an instant. I know. I know that you know the answer. <laughs> God damn it. God. It is not a leave in the background show. <laughs> I know. I know. That was on me. That was my mistake. Uh also, when you're done with the Midnight Club. Because obviously that takes precedent. That is first and foremost. Of course. There is a new season of Unsolved Mysteries starting. And the first three episodes are out. And there was a UFO episode. So Amy is a happy girl this week. And yeah, I'm pumped. It's doing the like release three episodes at a time thing. So next three episodes. Very much looking forward to So when I went on the Netflix today, I also saw that Unsolved Mysteries was on there. I was like, excuse girl, does that mean there's new episodes? Clearly, yes. That just goes to show how long it's been since I've been on Netflix. Girl, I had the same moment where I was like, oh, shit. Has this been out for like a year and I didn't realize because I've been that out of touch? (laughs) God damn it. And then I like went and I saw there was only three episodes. I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm I'm just catching it. Yeah. But it's really good. I actually did end up getting sucked into all three of those because they go by so quickly. I was like, oh, I'll just put on one before the season finale of House of the Dragon. And then uh, three episodes later, I was like, all right, well, we can watch that now. 
<laughs> I think the first one is very, very sad, very upsetting. They're all, you know, all the crime ones are very sad, very upsetting. Sure. It's Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. Yeah. But that one in particular, fucked up. It was one that like I couldn't stop thinking about the next day that I was just like, God damn it. Yeah. I hate that things like that exist. I know. And then I always have that moment in the middle of the episode where I'm like, you're getting too hopeful. The name of the show is Unsolved Mysteries. Amy, there's no resolution to this crime. It's going to be shitty. And like, do you have more information? Please scan this QR code, which is the new thing. Oh, how high tech. I know. So when you're done with the Midnight Club, Unsolved Mysteries, you have like a bunch of Unsolved Mystery episodes waiting for you. Absolutely. Yes. Boom. But given that we've like gotten all these like spooky wrecks out of the way, I think this is a perfect segue into your spooky what the fuck story. My spooky, creepy paranormal story. Girl, it's fucking Halloween. And I know that you're not going to fuck around with a spooky story (laughs) on Halloween. I hope not. I hope I picked a good one here. So now I feel like there's so much pressure on and I'm okay. I branched out a little bit this week as if I didn't already tell you that I watched so many like creepy paranormal shows, horror shows. I watched another one for my story this week, Mm. but I decided I had to pick a new one and I had to go on a little adventure. Uh Uh-huh. So I stumbled upon a little show called Evil Things. Now, it's not my favorite show. Oh. It's too many reenactments and it's not enough of the interviews, in my opinion, because that's usually the case. It's definitely dramatized. It's a little cheesy, but I've seen worse. And overall, it's not that bad. So I do feel the need to preface the story with my main qualm with the show would be that because it's a names and places may have been changed kind of show, I wasn't able to find any other resources to corroborate the story, which always makes me a little skeptical. Mm -hmm. Although it does appear to use real interviews, the show does open with, quote, the following two stories are inspired by documented paranormal encounters. Some identities have been changed, end quote. Mm Mm-hmm. So, sources, obviously, Evil Things, Season 1, Episode 3, which you can watch on Discovery Plus if you're interested. Mm. I also found the first story absolutely fascinating, and I might pick it for another week. Oh. But I didn't think it was actually scary enough. It was just weird as fuck and disturbing. Mm -hmm. So, there's no time period given for the story as far as I can tell. The interviews were conducted in 2017, and I would say, based on their ages, the story took place a few years earlier. At the time, Tori and James were married and had just moved out to the Midwest near Milwaukee. James had fallen in love with the house, mainly because they could afford it, but also because it had a huge attic space that he planned to renovate for when Tori's parents came to visit. Which, since Tori was having a hard time with the move and leaving her family, the attic renovation became their first priority. It was just your typical dusty old attic, but James could see the space had potential. Looking around, though, he also noticed there was something that just wasn't right. And he realized that someone had built a wall in the attic a few feet out from the exterior wall of the house. But there was no door, just a wall. 
James had no earthly idea why someone would have built this random wall, but assumed there must just be empty space behind it. James figured they'd be able to add a little more square footage if there was, so he made a hole in the drywall to see what was in there. All he saw inside was a bunch of old cardboard boxes. He definitely thought it was unusual that someone had boarded them up behind a wall, but assumed they were probably just filled with old clothes that the previous owner had left behind. So here's one of the parts where it got a little confusing, and I would have appreciated more interviews. Since this was presented subsequently to James discovering the boxes, then I assume we're supposed to believe that this following incident coincided perfectly with James breaking open the wall. But obviously, that may just be the producers taking liberties. However, while it may not be perfectly timed, then at some point during this whole ordeal, Tori was cooking downstairs when she turned around and saw that the kitchen window was suddenly cracked. Tori said, quote, I'd never seen a window crack like that. One minute it was fine, and the next it was broken. And in this weird kind of pattern, not shattered, but also not just a single crack either. And I hadn't seen or heard anything, end quote. Meanwhile, I think, I'm assuming, James was upstairs opening up the wall enough to get the boxes out. Although he assumed they were filled with old clothes, when he opened them, that's not what he found. Instead, all five boxes were filled with dozens of old VHS tapes, all of them meticulously labeled with dates on the spines. Now, this just didn't make any sense to James. He knew an older couple had lived in the house before them, but why would they have hidden old VHS tapes behind a wall? Curious, James brought them down to show Tori, but she didn't think anything of them. And since they were old and dusty, saw absolutely no reason they should keep them. So she took them out and threw them in the trash before they went to bed. Now, for James's whole life, he had never had a hard time sleeping. But that night, as he laid there in bed, he just couldn't stop thinking about what was on those tapes. Finally, he couldn't take the curiosity anymore, so he got out of bed and went to get them from the trash. Then he found a VCR and brought everything back up to the attic so he could watch the tapes. Why the attic, you ask? Uh-huh. James said, quote, that way Tori wouldn't know what I was doing, end quote, which, dude, not cool, red flag. Uh-uh. Yep, already. Like, no. This didn't occur to me, though. Like, can you imagine him going through all of the trouble to set everything up? Like, already planning to hide this from his wife, and then he hits play, and it's like old episodes of Jeopardy, and he's just like, fuck. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to take everything back downstairs. I'm going to throw it in the trash. I can never admit this to her. I, I'll look like an idiot. God damn it. That's hilarious. Uh, see, <laughs> I was thinking that that it would be like an old people porn and that his wife would walk in and be like, dude, this is what you're doing? Like in the attic, you're just watching old people bang? Monique, <laughs> I love you so, so much. Oh my God, as perverted as I am, that actually never occurred to me that it would be old person porn. Like, what? That should have been my first guess. God damn it. Yeah. Girl, that's why you got me, girl. If only it had been old person porn, Monique. Ugh, okay. I don't even know what the fuck this could be. Oh my God. Okay. Well, it wasn't old episodes of Jeopardy, and it definitely wasn't old person porn, I guess, thankfully for this guy, <laughs> because I would be like, the trauma is real. Absolutely. Instead, James hit play, 
and found himself watching footage recorded from outside someone's house at night, looking into their windows and following them as they moved from room to room. <gasps> uh-uh. Girl, I fucking know. Uh-uh. I know. No. <sighs> I know. That's why there's like secretly part of me that wants this to be just like bullshit dramatization and reenactments and the producers like hyping everything up, whatever, because if this is true and this happened, I am forever disturbed and I can't, and I can't handle any of it. Uh Uh-uh. It was clear that whoever had made these tapes had spied on people in their homes without them knowing, while James immediately knew that what he was seeing was creepy and wrong, he couldn't help but keep watching. He said, quote, I know. I probably should have stopped when I realized someone was being watched, but I just couldn't, end quote. James watched the tape for over three hours before he finally realized he needed to get to bed. But when Tori woke up in the morning, James wasn't next to her, which was distinctly weird, according to her, because James loved to sleep, which, same, dude, who the fuck doesn't? Same girl. And she couldn't remember a time when he had woken up before her. She got up to look for him, and when she ran into him downstairs and asked why he was up so early, he told her he was just working on the attic. But according to Tori, something about the way he was acting seemed a bit off. Which, obviously, he's fucking lying to you. He's up there watching his fucking tapes. But she shrugged it off, thinking he was distressed from the move and the attic. Now, at that time, Tori hadn't started working yet and was still looking for a job and trying to stay busy while James was at work. But... She said the house felt cold and uncomfortable whenever she was there alone, and she didn't like being there when it was just her. She didn't have much choice since James was gone at work most of the time and said it was tough. Instead, she tried to brush off the feeling and just look forward to the one-on-one time they would spend together. Because the two of them had a weekly ritual where once a week, they would set aside special time to focus on each other. No cell phones, no work talk, just the two of them. Cute. And if the reenactment is to be believed, a bottle of champagne and a bubble bath, which work, girl. Yes, that's cute. Adorable. Like that's lovely. Yeah. If you do that, get it. Yeah. These poor reenactment actors, though, Monique, like naked. I know they have like little (laughs) pasties on or whatever in this tub together, awkwardly drinking champagne. It's only like mildly cringeworthy, but it's still like. You can definitely sense the awkward nakedness between them. It's so, ugh, I could not. Yeah, and you get paid like zero dollars for those reenactments. So to spend your day doing that, it's kind of like, ugh. I know that because of you, and I cannot help but think it every single time where I'm like, these people got like a hundred dollars to have to like sit in a bathtub half naked with a stranger and drink fake champagne. It's not even real champagne. And drink uh, sparkling apple cider. (laughs) Yes. Ugh. So while they're enjoying their bubbly and their bubbles, James tells Tori he's going to work on the attic later tonight. And Tori seems disappointed that he seems like he doesn't want to spend the rest of the night with her. But she kind of thought it was just the pressure of the move and him wanting to finish the attic. Over the next three days, though, James wasn't in the attic working on the renovations. Instead, he spent every minute he could get away from Tori up there watching the tapes. Even though nothing was really happening in them, it was just a woman, possibly with her husband and family, going about her life unaware that she was being watched and filmed. But James just couldn't stop watching them. It was like an addiction, which 
yeah, it is an addiction at this point. He stayed up late, hours after Tori had gone to bed, just watching them. He said, quote, I couldn't explain it, end quote. That night, though, while James was upstairs watching the tapes, Tori was woken up from a dead sleep by a hand touching her face. Uh-uh. Girl, I know. I, I At first, I was just like, okay, it's like the creepy tapes. All right, we'll like see some shit, whatever. There's also strange things in your house touching your face while you sleep, apparently, on top of these creepy fucking stalker videos. No, 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 no. James heard Tori scream from downstairs and managed to tear himself away from watching the tapes long enough to go see what was wrong. Tori was clearly frightened when he got to the bedroom and asked what happened. She told him there was someone in the house, that a hand had touched her face while she was sleeping, and she had seen a woman in a dark dress leaving their bedroom. James checked the house for an intruder, but found no one. All the doors and windows were still locked, and the security alarm was still set. When he went to tell Tori, he asked if she might have dreamed it. But Tori said, quote, I know what I felt and what I saw. I was wide awake, end quote. But since Tori is also pretty much blind without her contacts, according to her, by the next morning, she had convinced herself that it was all in her head and wasn't real. Despite the disturbing events the previous night, the next morning, she was more bothered by the fact that James hadn't been in bed when she had woken up from the hand on her face. When she asked him where he was, though, he told her he had fallen asleep on the couch. Then he told her there was a business dinner that night that he should go to, but after what had happened, he didn't want to leave her there alone at night. But despite the fact that she was scared and didn't want to be alone in the house, she told him that she was fine and he should go. But she regretted it as soon as she said it. Because even though she was a little mad at him, she really didn't want to be home alone. So there she is again, alone in the house at night. She was searching for jobs again and just trying to keep busy, but she couldn't stop thinking about the night before. She knew someone had touched her face and that she had seen a woman in her bedroom, but she was already uncomfortable in the house and didn't want to freak herself out anymore. When it started getting really late and James still wasn't home yet, she had a couple of glasses of wine to try to relax. According to the reenactment, Tori was asleep on the couch when James came back home. He saw her sleeping, but instead of waking her, he went straight to the attic. Obviously. Obviously. James said, quote, I don't want to make excuses, but it was like something had control of me. Like I was being possessed. I couldn't fight it. End quote. James said that by that point, he had watched those tapes for over 50 hours. And it was, and it was nothing, really. It was voyeuristic and creepy, yeah, but it was just footage of this woman going about her life. That night, though, the video was different. The watcher wasn't just watching from outside the house anymore. And I know this is the creepy part, and I shouldn't stop this right here, but the fact that you watched the watcher and then I did kind of a story on a watcher is more proof of your psychic powers, I think. (laughs) Baby girl. I have a very skeptical look because I'm pretty sure Monique is a witch. I'm convinced. (laughs) It's so funny because I didn't even really want to watch The Watcher. I really wanted to watch The Midnight Club. It's so good. And for some reason, I watched the first episode of The Watcher and I was like, I don't want to watch this. Because you knew? 
You knew I was going to do this fucking story. Yep. I fucking guess so. (laughs) You beautiful psychic bitch, you. I love you. I fucking love you, girl. (laughs) As soon as she said it, I was like, God damn it. I was like, okay. (laughs) Girl, I don't fucking know. It has a mind of its own. Just here, man. I'm just a vessel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm impressed. Very impressed. (laughs) So James watched on in shock as whoever was behind the camera broke into the woman's house and stalked inside. James said, quote, I should have stopped watching right then, but I couldn't, end quote. Which, like, I get a part of me, like the curiosity, but also, no, I do not want to see what is going to happen to this woman. Like, it's nothing good. Like, pause the fucking tape and call the cops. Do not do that to yourself. Like, as soon as that should happen, I'd be like, okay, this is a this game changer. No, no, no. Mm-mm. No, they're being dropped off at the local precinct, girl. That is not my fucking problem. I'm not doing this. Girl, thank you. Like, same. But obviously he didn't do that. And he just kept watching. Meanwhile, Tori was still asleep downstairs, but suddenly woke up. She said she didn't know what woke her up, but noticed that the room had gotten really cold. Then Tori suddenly felt hands grab her by her ankles and pull. (gasps) Girl, I fucking know. Tori said, quote, I could feel a pair of ice cold hands holding my ankles Mm -mm. and dragging me. Mm! End quote. No. I know. I know. Full body chills. Absolutely the fuck not. Girl. I don't want warm hands to grab me by my ankles. I definitely do not want ice cold hands to grab me by my ankles. No, I don't want, don't, don't touch my fucking ankles. Don't touch my, rule number one, don't touch my ankles. The only being that was ever allowed to touch my ankles was my cat who's been dead for like seven years, (laughs) meow, because he would hide and then he would pounce on me and then I'd feel his, I'd feel his furry little arms grab my ankles and then give me a little bite and then run off. Those are the, that is the only being that's allowed to touch my ankles fucking ever. That's fair. That sounds adorable. That's it. And he's been dead for a very long time. <laughs> so no one touches your ankles. So that means no one, nothing. No one touches my fucking ankles. <laughs> Absolutely the fuck not. I'm okay with this. I stand by this. <laughs> It was the best, especially when you like recently shaved and then you're like, oh, a little furry arms on me. What? <laughs> it was so fun. <laughs> That's so cute. He was so cute. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So again, I'm just going to say there's not enough goddamn interviews in this show because all I know is that Tori was dragged across the floor before the hands finally released her. Afterwards, she said she sat there on the floor for what seemed like an hour, not knowing what to do. When James finally came downstairs, he told Tori that they needed to call the police. James said, quote, all five boxes of the tapes were the same, just a different woman being murdered in the end, end quote. What the fuck? Apparently, the previous owners, the old couple, had taken on a border at one point. By the time Tori and James had bought the house, he was already in prison for armed robbery and scheduled to get out in a year. According to the show, The tapes made sure that he didn't get released. He never said why he killed those women. (gasps) Yeah. Creepy. I feel like the implication there is that something possessed him to kill these women. And that's why he has never said anything. But I feel like that's also just like 
criminal 101, shut your goddamn mouth. I wouldn't look too into that. Yeah. Tori said, quote, I know that some people think that negative energy can be attached to things. I used to think those people were crazy, but now I guess I'm one of them, end quote. From the very first time James started watching these tapes, Tori said he became a completely different person. He said it was because something took control of him. Although Tori's not sure if that's the case, she said, quote, but what I know is whenever he watched those tapes, terrible things happened to me, things I can't explain. I've seen what it can do, and I saw what it did to us. I never believed in any of that stuff. But after what happened to me in Milwaukee, I want people to know these things are real, end quote. After their ordeal, Tori and James eventually divorced. According to the final text on the screen, the man who made the tapes was convicted of four counts of first-degree murder and is now serving two life sentences. He continues to deny any memory of the crimes. And that was my first foray into the show Evil Things. What the fuck? I fucking know. I don't even know what to call this. Haunted VHS tapes? Haunted snuff films? All of the above? Yes. I I couldn't handle it. Part of me really hopes this is just uh, just entertainment bullshit and not real because this is terrifying. But it's also so crazy that part of me wants it to be a little real. Anyway, you can make your own judgments on this. You can also watch season one, episode three of Evil Things and decide for yourself. What the fuck? Girl, I know. I felt like I had to give a little paranormal and a little crime since it's Halloween. I just like yeah. was like, let's let's do it. All the things. I'm like very fucked up by this story. I, I was very fucked up by this story. And again, there were not enough interviews. I could have literally just had those people talking the entire time with no reenactments and I would have been the happiest girl in the world. I'd been like, tell me everything. So yes, I did try to do my due diligence and I Googled the location and their names and just some general things about tapes and birders and attic and all whatnot. And I could not find anything that came up that was indicative that this had been a story published anywhere else or interviews anywhere else. However, again, names and places may have been changed. So I don't have all the information to go on. Right. Uh, I don't really know what to, <laughs> what to say to, to the story other than it's like kind of fucked me up. Girl, I mean, it kind of should. Like, yeah. One, boarded up snuff films in a wall in your attic. And two, if that already wasn't crazy and creepy enough, like then as soon as you find them fucking weird shit starts happening to you and things start touching you in your house when nothing's there. Yes. That being said, I'm assuming the implication is that whoever was touching her was one of the victims. Because if the guy wasn't dead, then it's not the murderer's evil spirit. Or maybe they just think this guy literally bought like haunted VHS tapes when they were blank. And then he was like, oh no, I'm taking over by the tapes. I got to record this lady. I was just going to make... Nice videos of dogs, and then this happened. God damn it. I don't know. This is so fucked up. <laughs> uh, well, then I guess mission accomplished. <laughs> there you go. Happy Halloween. Yay. So yeah, evil things. It's not the worst paranormal show I watched. Not my favorite. It's no celebrity ghost stories, but 
What is? It was good for shits and gigs. Boom. Thank you so much for that story. Oh my God. Of course. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Now that I've given you like a little amuse-bouche of the (laughs) true crime, are you ready to give us the real deal? Yeah, girl. Because I know you fucking went all out (laughs) because it's fucking Halloween and it's your birthday and you were like, I'm going to fucking do what I want. So lay it on me, Monique. Yeah, girl. All right. This story's horrific and terrible. So sorry, but it's also the true crime portion and it's also Halloween and it's our two year anniversary. So I had to go hard. Sorry. You knew what you were getting into. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You did this to yourself, <laughs> but it's, it's a terrible story. It's very shitty and trigger warnings for a lot of shit, but I'll definitely trigger warning throughout because it's just a terrible fucking story. Uh, incidentally, this was one of the four that I talked about last week. Oh. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. You eased us into it, though. Yeah, yeah. Because when I saw this one, I was like, no, this is a Halloween story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just laughing because uh, the defense mechanism's at an 11 right now because this is a terrible story. So I'm going to be talking about Elise Poller. Sources. Britannica.com, PulseDailyNews.com, Wikipedia.com, livingmagazine.com, timbercreektalon.com, ksby.com, and the Morbid Podcast. On July 22nd, 1995, 15-year-old Elise Marie Poller was watching a movie with her family when she got a phone call. After the brief call, Elise hung up and yelled out to her family, quote, I love you, going to bed, end quote, and headed to her room. When she got there, she filled her bed with pillows then covered it up with her sheets to make it look like she was sleeping in bed before she snuck out of her French door windows for the very last time. As I mentioned, Elise was 15 and fully in her rebellious stage. She was smoking weed and drinking alcohol and sneaking out more and more. And her parents were really worried about her. This worry only intensified when they got a call from her school one day explaining that their daughter was noticeably under the influence and as a result was being suspended. Her parents, Dave and Lisanne, put her in a substance abuse program and tried to talk to their daughter about what was going on with her. But Elise was insistent that she was fine. And it kind of looked like she was. She had good grades and she was on the soccer team. And the two other friends in her friend group were a bunch of goody two-shoes. Elise was the one who was the wild one in the group. So the next morning, Dave and Lisanne go to check in on their daughter and find that she's not in bed. And they justifiably freak the fuck out. Because while, yes, she had snuck out before and had been caught, she always came back. She had never been gone the entire night. So the Pollers went to the police station and told the authorities that their daughter was missing and that they were worried about her. And while the cops did show concern, they did see a pattern of behavior with Elise's history of sneaking out and treated her as a runaway. And while, yes, Elise had snuck out before, again, she had never been gone the entire night and her parents knew that something was wrong. Not to mention, there was a lot of exciting things coming up on the horizon for Elise. There was soccer and her family's impending move from the town of Arroyo Grande, which Elise had been particularly excited about because she was getting very bored of where she lived. And seeing as how Elise was very friendly and social, she wasn't too concerned with having to make new friends after the move. She was also the oldest of four children and was really close with her younger siblings. Her parents knew that she wouldn't have run away and not told her siblings that she was leaving. 
And while, yes, she was annoyed with her parents, believing that they were overreacting to her drinking and smoking weed, she was still close with them. So there really wasn't a motive for her to run away. But when it got out that a beautiful blonde 15-year-old girl was missing, people started calling in tips. And the tip that kept coming in was that Elise was seen in South St. Louis Obispo. Authorities searched the area multiple times looking for her, but always came back empty. Despite tips regularly coming in, months went by and Elise was nowhere to be found or heard from. Then, almost nine months later, a teenager named Royce Casey walked into the police station and confessed to Elise's murder. He told them everything that happened and where she was. He led the authorities to her body and told them about the two other teens who participated in her murder, Jacob Delashmut and Joseph Fiorella. The three were known as burnouts. And when I say burnouts, they weren't just potheads. They took speed, acid, meth, and would occasionally partake in sniffing glue. And they drank a lot. Okay. All right. Yeah. If you're huffing glue, it's too, you're too, it's too far. It's too many things. Relax. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't the meth cut it? Like, do you really need to fucking sniff glue on top of that? On top of everything? Uh, I'm going to say no. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you don't need to add the glue on top of everything. I don't think so. But, you know, what do I know? The meth was probably fine. Yeah. (laughs) I think so. I think they they could have just been like fine with the meth, but you know. It holds it all together, Monique. That's the point. <laughs> Amy, I'm obsessed with you. Don't ever change. I love you. Thank you. <laughs> Me and my dad jokes. I can't stop. I love it. And they drank a lot. They rarely went to school, opting to hang out at an old drainage pipe known as the pipe of death. And from what I understand, it was called that because a teenager had actually died there. I don't know if it was by suicide or an accident, but... Oh, okay. Or we could not go there. <laughs> it got that clever name. Yeah. Or like we could go to Waffle House. That's cool too. They have waffles. It's in the name. Girl, I know. You could always go to Waffle House. Yeah. It's always an option. Royce Casey was 16 years old and Jacob was 15, while Joe Fiorella... The ringleader of the group was just 14 years old. What? And he looks like a child. Like, he looks like a baby. Yes, it's like the wildest shit. No. Like, you look at him, you're like, no, this didn't fucking happen. And the thing is, the reason why Joe, the 14-year-old, was in charge was because he had recently gotten into Satanism. Uh. And the three boys were all members of the Church of Satan. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And had even ordered membership cards on the internet for a hundred bucks a piece to prove that they were legit card-carrying members. Satan prints membership cards? Sure does. He's at that, you know, he's got, he's LLC'd, man. He's next level. Yeah. <laughs> got that recruitment down. He's got a corporation, you know. <laughs> he prints out. <laughs> Great benefits. Absolutely. He has a deal with uh, Kinko's FedEx to print out his contracts, as we established. Got to. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I'm sure he uses stamps.com, you know, get that discount. (laughs) So to clarify, for those who don't know, the Church of Satan isn't what these asshats think it is. The Church of Satan is a counterculture group founded in the United States by Anton LaVey in the 1960s. Contrary to its name, the church did not promote evil, quote unquote, but rather humanistic values. 
The church did not worship Satan as the Christian embodiment of evil or even as an existing being. Instead, LeVay taught that, quote, his infernal majesty, end quote, as he refers to Satan, was a symbol of humanistic values such as self-assertion and rebellion against unjust authority. So most people now who say that they're Satanists and they're, it's really just like, don't be an asshole and, you know, be kind to people and kind to the environment. That's kind of like the tenets of Satanism. And it's, it's just kind of become like a funny thing to say is that you're a Satanist, but they're not, there's no devil worshiping happening here. But these pieces of shit had not gotten the memo and we're out 300 bucks uh, <laughs> with their fucking, who knows what? where the That's fuck- how much they paid for this? It's 100 bucks a piece for the fucking membership card. Wild. And this is 100 bucks in 1995 money. That's, that costs a lot more. That's worth a lot more than it is today. And the three had become obsessed with sacrificing a virgin. Apparently, they had talked about this so often in public that there was talk in the town that they had already sacrificed and killed a virgin. Although it was one of those things where you hear these crazy rumors and you don't actually believe them. Joe was particularly obsessed with this idea as he was reading a lot of Aleister Crowley books. Joe performed this ritual in particular all of the time, where he would catch a frog, crucify it, cook it, and then eat it, believing that once he had consumed it, that you were supposed to feel the power of the great spirit coursing through your body. That's just food poisoning. No! Girl. And apparently he did this ritual with the frogs all the fucking time. Like, all the time. But the frogs weren't enough. They wanted a sacrifice that would give them more power. Because you see, the three boys, as well as Travis Williams, were in a metal band called Hatred, with heavy metal band Slayer serving as their main inspiration. So Joe tells the group, the frogs aren't cutting it, they gotta up the ante and sacrifice a virgin. Because when they do, their band will become unstoppable, and Satan will give them the power to shred and play the guitar amazingly, and the band will become super famous. But, of course, it couldn't just be any virgin, they had to find the perfect virgin. Ugh. Ugh, I know. I know. Hard eye roll. I can't even. Sacrifice yourselves, virgins. Get out of here. Yes, exactly. One with blonde hair and blue eyes, and luckily for the band, Joe had a perfect candidate in mind. Elise. Shocking to probably fucking no one, Joe was fucking obsessed with Elise. And Joe said that sacrificing Elise would be, quote, the ultimate sin against God, end quote, and get them their, quote, ticket to hell, end quote, which, hard eye roll. Like, what the fuck? Right? It's gonna get you a ticket to prison. That's it. Not hell. Like, prison. If that's your hell, yeah. You dumb fuck. Exactly. Thank you. This is a 14-year-old coming up with this plan. This is true. A a 14-year-old who's on meth and speed and fucking huffing glue. And they're like, guys, this is amazing. Satan's going to let us shred. No. And the thing is, Jacob knew Elise because he took the substance abuse class with her. And they also went to school together whenever Jacob felt like going to school. And while they knew each other very casually, they didn't really talk. However, Jacob learned in their substance abuse program that Elise liked to smoke weed. And she had a reputation for hanging out with older guys who would give her weed and get her high for free. So... Jacob shares this information with Joe, being like, I know how we can get her. This is how we get her. And Elise becomes Joe's latest obsession. So the boys started talking with her and becoming friends with her. 
They offered her some pot and she would go smoke with them at the pipe of death every now and then. And when she would leave them, the three of them would plot on how they were going to kill her and sacrifice her body to Satan. Bro, we're just hanging out, having a chill smoke. Why do you have to ruin it? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going out for like absent zerts with some friends that you kind of just, just made, you know, that you knew, but you just started getting friendly with, you started hanging out with them. And every time you leave, they're all like, this is how we're going to kill and sacrifice Amy to Satan. No, Monique, that's like a variation on your paranoia as a teenage girl, where you like leave your friends and they're like, oh my God, everyone's talking about me. I don't know what they're saying. They're saying I'm a bitch and they hate me. I'm like so paranoid. And then now this is the absolute worst version of that, but not in your head in real life. Absolutely. In real fucking life. Apparently there was a botched attempt on Elisa's life. Travis Williams got down into an embankment and pretended to have fallen in. He called out to Elise for help and the other three boys ran down to see if she would. And because Elise was the person that she was, she went down to help, but she saw Travis holding a huge knife and the three other boys started yelling, do it, do it, do it. But Travis froze and couldn't go through with stabbing Elise. And Elise was confused, but she thought that they were joking because she believed that they were all becoming friends. So she didn't report the incident. After she disappeared, her father said about her, quote, Elise was very trusting. That was the root of the problem. She never thought there could be anything wrong with anybody, end quote, which breaks my fucking heart. I know. Also, like, there's something wrong with everybody, I think. Just like a little. I mean, yeah. You're lucky if it's just a little, (laughs) realistically. Yeah, like some more than others, but yeah. The night before she disappeared, Elise was hanging out with some friends at a house party and Jacob was there. Jacob told her that he'd gotten some acid and some really good weed and would be down to do it with her if she was interested. So the two exchanged numbers and the following evening, Jacob called Elise twice and told her where to meet. She hung up, told her parents she loved them and that she was going to bed, went upstairs, packed her bed with pillows, then snuck out of her room through the French door windows. And Elise met up with the three boys. Travis Williams, the fourth member of Hatred, couldn't make it that night because he had just been arrested for shooting at an elderly woman. Travis, bro. And these are all like fucking teenagers. It's, it's the wildest shit in the world. So Elise, Royce, Joe, and Jacob smoked weed together. Then the guys suggested that they venture to a eucalyptus field to hang out and smoke some more. And trigger warning, this is where things get really fucking bad. So they venture into the field and the four are smoking weed when one of the boys suddenly pulled Elise by her hair down to her feet and pushed her down on her back. Jacob removed his belt and wrapped it around her neck and began to strangle her while Royce held her down. Then Joe Fiorella stabbed her with a knife directly in her throat. And the three of them took turns passing the knife around and stabbing her in the throat with it. Oh my God, no, it's so bad. It's so bad. And, and this, this detail is like really, really, really bad that's coming up. Royce Casey later told police that as they were stabbing her, Elise repeatedly called out for her mother and prayed to God to make it stop. <sighs> that always gets me. That always gives me chills. Uh, I know. 
And okay, God, it just, I'm sorry. Like this whole section, like every line is just worse. It's worse than the last one. I know. And I feel like if I'm not reacting, it's just because I'm like deeply upset and traumatized. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. When the 14, 15, and 16-year-old boys felt that Elise wasn't dying fast enough, they stomped on her neck. And there is conflicting accounts as to whether they waited until she was dead (gasps) or not. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's so bad. It was all so bad. Yeah. It's all so bad. It's so much. It's really, really, really bad. And so this next part is also really, really, really bad that- if they didn't wait till she was dead, the three boys took turns raping her while she was probably choking to death on her own blood. And that wasn't enough because they also went back to defile her corpse several times over the coming weeks also. Wow. Horrible. It's, it's, and then everything that I just said a 14-year-old orchestrated this. I can't. I can't. I know. It's really fucking bad. In the months after Elisa's murder, Royce Casey stopped hanging out with Jacob and Joe and found Christianity. Oh, now? Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. Royce said that in the months following her murder, he kept having flashbacks of a murder and visions of Elise. The day he went to the police station, allegedly he had seen a missing persons poster of Elise and racked with guilt, he went to the station to confess everything. And not just that, Royce was also afraid of Jacob and Joe and concerned that he could be their next sacrifice. Because in addition to brutally murdering a 15-year-old girl, apparently there was a Slayer lyric that said something to the effect of, if you're not with us, you're against us. And since Royce had stopped hanging out with the two after the murder, he was worried that he was next. That's a fair assumption. Yeah, absolutely. On March 13th, 1996, Royce Casey went to the police and told them everything. He led authorities to Lisa's body, which had been in eucalyptus fields for more than eight months, less than a quarter of a mile away from her home. What? Eight months? Eight months. For more than eight months, yeah. Why? Did they not do like search the area at all? I have no idea. I have to assume she was hidden. They don't, I can't find it anywhere that she was, but she couldn't have just been out. No, somebody would have, somebody, yeah, would have stumbled upon that at some point. Yeah, like she had been hidden, maybe not great, but somewhere. Holy fuck, dude. That's so upsetting. Yeah, it's so upsetting. Oh my God. And while her body was badly decomposed, a forensic pathologist was able to determine Elise had been stabbed 12 times in the neck, strangled and stomped on. However, none of her wounds were fatal. She actually died from bleeding out. What? That's bananas to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt that's so much worse, though. Literally. So if it's true that she was raped before she died, she's literally bleeding out her neck while these people are assaulting her and stopping on her fucking neck. She's just bleeding out. Like, I cannot imagine any of this. And I remember seeing some psychic on whatever the fuck and saying something to a grieving mother being like, when like a super traumatic thing like this happens where they're going to cross over, they just like leave their body. 
and they don't feel it. And that's the only thing I can hope that she like wasn't there for this, that she like had already left her body and wasn't actually experiencing this because no one fucking deserves this, especially like a 15 year old girl who is just like smoking weed with people she thought were her friends. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Thought you were cool, bro. Also, I would like to state that this virgin nonsense bullshit, you know, like when you think of a virgin sacrifice, you want someone pure, right? And it's not just like the virgin shit, like that, you know, they're like godly and don't use swear words and are like goody two shoes and shit. Elise, absolutely the fuck was not that. Like, yes, she was a virgin, but you know, she was getting suspended. She was like smoking weed. She was like, you know, she was like a party girl. She was a bit of, she was rebelling. She was a bit of a party girl. And some have theorized that the reason why is ultimately is that Joe Fiorella just wanted to have sex with her. So he decided it had to be her and that he knew that it wasn't going to be consensual. So this is the only way he could get what he wanted. Jaw is on the fucking floor. Literally, I want to fucking flip a goddamn table. Like there was no, there was no acceptable reason for this, but that is definitely, no, definitely not an acceptable reason for this. Yeah. It makes it so much worse. Uh, and like realistically, I think that that's more more likely the scenario of why it had to be her. <sighs> I hate everything. Burn it down. So shortly after Royce Casey confessed and was interrogated, Joe Fiorella and Jacob Delashmut were arrested and confessed almost immediately to planning and participating in Elise's murder. Joe admitted that it was his plan and that everyone involved was an equally willing participant. And it turns out that the boys had been blabbing about the murder all over town. During the investigation, at least two people came forward saying that the boys had told them about the crimes that they had committed. But most people had just brushed it off as a fake story. And especially since they weren't with the whole devil-worshipping bullshit, people thought that them aligning themselves with this crime would give them street cred as real-deal Satanists. Investigators also noted that Joe Fiorella's mother told them that her son had told her that Royce had had sex with Elisa's body. One of Jacob's friends told police that he bragged about going back to defile the corpse long after Elise had been murdered. In February 1997, the preliminary hearing began. Doug Odom, the district attorney's office chief investigator, testified that Casey had told him that the trio had plotted to kill Elise because of how she looked, that her blonde hair and blue eyes made her a perfect sacrifice to Satan and that if they made a virgin sacrifice, their metal band hatred will become world famous. Now, I tried to look up details about a trial, and it doesn't look like there was one. It just looks like maybe there was a hearing, and that was it. What? Yeah, because I, I couldn't find anything about like deliberations or anything like that. Okay. Is this because they confessed, kind of? Yeah, I, that's what it looks like. So a month later, Joseph Fiorella took a plea deal, which in exchange for pleading guilty to first-degree murder, prosecutors would drop the other charges, including rape and torture. The Superior Court judge sentenced the ringleader, Joseph Fiorella, who was only, again, 14 years old at the time of the murder, to 26 years to life. During the hearing, Elisa's father addressed Fiorella in court, saying, quote, Joseph, it's a parent's worst fear and lifetime pain to outlive their child. It's even worse knowing that she was murdered, raped, and tortured as a virgin sacrifice on the altar of Satan so that you can earn a ticket to hell, end quote. 
Royce Casey's lawyers tried to change the public's perception of him, trying to paint him out to be a good guy who got mixed up with the wrong crowd. After all, he had found God and religion and was the one who confessed to the cops of his own volition. If it weren't for him, they still wouldn't know what happened to Elise. And while that last bit may be true, Royce Casey received 25 years to life in prison. But he avoided life without the possibility of parole by pleading no contest. Important to note that while Casey was 16 at the time of the murder, he was tried as an adult. If he were tried as a juvenile, he would have only received seven years. Which, what? What the fuck? Like, I just feel the whole system's bad, man. Like, just across the board. It's people... (laughs) People get sentenced too much or not enough. It's all bad. Yeah. Like Casey, Jacob Delashmut pled no contest to first-degree murder and was sentenced to 26 years to life, 85% of which he has to serve before being eligible for parole. And I know that there's, for some reason, he's the only one who had the 85% minimum. And I think it has to do with the fact that both Casey and Joseph testified that Jacob was one of the three of them who repeatedly revisited Elise's corpse after they were murdered to rape her. That's just speculation on my part, but who knows. After sentencing, the three boys were sent to different detention centers around California. And at their hearing or trial, I don't know because I couldn't really find trial, the three boys repeatedly talked about how heavy metal music had influenced them, specifically Slayer. And the Pollard family wanted someone to pay for their daughter's murder. So in November of 1996, they filed two lawsuits against Slayer. The first was against the band itself and the record label for unlawfully marketing and distributing harmful and obscene products to minors, pointing out these specific lyrics from the song 213 to make their case. Erotic sensations tingle my spine, a dead body lying next to mine, smooth blue black lips. I start salivating as we kiss. Mine forever, the sweet death. I cannot forget your soft breaths. Panting excitedly with my hands around your neck. Shades are drawn. No one out can see. What I've done, what's become of me. Here I stand above all that's been true. How I love, how I love to kill you. Elisa's father, Dave, told the LA Times, quote, Slayer and others in the industry have developed sophisticated strategies to sell death metal music to adolescent boys. They don't care whether the violent, misogynistic messages and these lyrics cause children to do harmful things. They couldn't care less about what their fans did to our daughter. All they care about is his money. End quote. The lawsuit was delayed until the case was over, which ended up being in the year 2000. In a second lawsuit, the family said the band's lyrics incited the three teens to kill, which is what Casey Fiorello and Delashmut each testified, and that Slayer's songs gave instructions on how to torture, rape, and murder. Both lawsuits against the band were thrown out as song lyrics and artistic expression are protected by the First Amendment, with a judge on one of the lawsuits saying, quote, Slayer lyrics are repulsive and profane, but they do not direct or instruct listeners to commit the acts that resulted in the vicious torture and murder of Elise Poller, end quote. And the Poller family never recovered from Elise's murder. Her younger siblings were crushed, and her parents were too depressed to leave the house most days. They stopped going to work and lost their jobs and home and ended up on welfare. Elise's father, Dave, suffered from horrific PTSD. In 2014, Dave was involved in a road rage incident that triggered his post-traumatic stress disorder. According to a police report, 
Dave was cut off and followed the vehicle to nearby parking lot. Then he opened the person's door and pulled the driver out by his shirt. He was charged with battery, which was ultimately dismissed. He received probation, a $500 fine, and was ordered to take anger management classes. In 2017, the district attorney's office filed a motion to reimburse the state victim's compensation board, which was ordered to pay the Pollard family $34,871 for funeral expenses and counseling costs. The office also ruled to pay additional restitution on the loss of wages to David Pollard. The Pollers have yet to receive a dime of this money. Damn, that fucking sucks, dude. Mm-hmm. The case ended up serving as inspiration for the 2009 cult classic horror film, Jennifer's Body, which stars Megan Fox as a high schooler named Jennifer, who becomes demonically possessed when a rock band, Low Shoulder, attempts to sacrifice her to Satan in order to gain fame and fortune. After botching the sacrifice, she takes revenge on her male classmates by going on a bloody killing spree and picking them off one by one. In July 2016, Royce Casey had his first parole hearing, and while his attorney alleged that his client is now clean-cut and fully rehabilitated, Casey was denied parole. The following year, Jacob Delashmut was also denied parole, and he won't have another hearing until December of 2024. Royce Casey was up for parole again last year. The district attorney argued that as the oldest of the three boys, Casey could have stopped the whole thing. And he never truly explained why he participated in Elise Paula's brutal torture and murder. Despite his reasonable efforts for rehabilitation, the DA questioned if he would appropriately handle rejection outside of prison when someone learns of his past. However, in March 2021, Casey was granted parole by two California parole board commissioners. During his hearing, they mentioned Casey's 20 years of good behavior, his participation in rehabilitation programs, mentoring, earning his GED, and studying for his bachelor's degree. He also has plans to move to LA and work as a substance abuse counselor. The parole board said, quote, we find that the person who committed that crime and the person who sits before us today are two different people, end quote. Following the ruling, the state's legal team had 120 days to review legal issues before going to the governor's desk. But when Governor Gavin Newsom reviewed the case, he reversed the decision, which came after the district attorney wrote a letter to the governor urging that he deny Casey's parole because he felt that the crimes were too brutal for parole to be an option right now. Royce Casey's legal team appealed the decision, writing, quote, because of the crime, not because of who Royce is today. The governor opposed the release, and that is just not in accord with the law. Royce Casey isn't serving a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Obviously, he is serving one with the possibility of parole. End quote. On June 6, 2022, San Luis Obispo County Superior Court Judge Craig Van Ruyen reversed Governor Newsom's decision and granted Casey's petition. The judge said, quote, After review of the record, the court cannot find evidence to support the governor's decision and therefore grants the requested relief and reinstates the board's grant of parole, end quote. Jacob Delashmut's next parole hearing is in two years, but given that by all accounts, Jacob has shown less remorse for his crime than Casey's, it's not looking great for him. And while Royce was going through his whole, like his appeals at, for parole, Joseph Fiorella, again, the ringleader of the plot to sacrifice Elise Pollard, 
filed a habeas corpus petition saying that he wasn't mentally competent at the time of the murder and didn't know what he was doing. However, Casey and Jacob both testified that Fiorella absolutely the fuck understood the nature of his crime, and Fiorella's petition was denied. While the Pollard family did not oppose Casey's parole, their attorney, Alan Hutkin, said that the Pollard family strongly opposes any type of parole for Jacob Delashmut and Joe Fiorella. And that is the wildly upsetting story of Elise Pollard. Oh, that was so brutal and awful. Mm-hmm. But also, I love the movie Jennifer's Body. So did that provide a very slight palate cleanser to this whole situation? Yes. I appreciate that little nugget in the mound of shit that was the rest of this situation. Ugh. So I've never seen Jennifer's Body. And I was... <gasps> I know. I know. What? I had it queued up last night, but I had to actually finish the story. So I couldn't watch it. So I knew that she murdered boys... I was like evil, but I didn't know why she got that way because because I had heard that this was the inspiration. I'm like, how is this the inspiration? And then I was like, yes. Oh, I forgot that that's how she got her powers as well. But yeah, which incidentally, by the time you guys listen to this, you will have like a day or two left of Jennifer's body still being on Netflix because they're taking it out uh, once November's over. So check that shit out. I might have to throw that on. Yeah. Yeah, girl. So yeah. Happy Halloween. That was really good. Thank you. It's a terrible story, but you did a beautiful job. It was very well done, but it was horrifying and upsetting. And yeah. Yeah. I might have to have a drink after this, Monique. I'll have it in your honor. Please do. I respect that. I think I'll watch a, I'll call myself with a midnight club. Yes. Please (sighs) do. Yeah. I'll try. I was like, you will not be disappointed. I'm certain I won't. And it makes me so happy that you love it so much. I love it. And like I said, it sounds ridiculous. I know, but I like thought of you the whole time. because I was just like, I know Mike love. I know Monique loves Mike Flanagan and I know she would love this. And I wish we were watching it together right now. So Uh, it made me feel very near and dear to you. Yay. I love that. Thank you so, so much for that story. Even though I'm really upset. (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm going to just like keep holding my neck all night because it's fair. This was so visceral to me. It's so fucked up. So upsetting. Fuck. And all of this to, and they kept, apparently they kept changing their, their story like for in the hearing, but like the band and then it wasn't the band. And it was like, also let's be fucking real. Whenever like people get awards and shit, no one thinks Satan. Yeah. I'm sorry to be that bitch, but like no one's thinking Satan. (sighs) You know, so maybe he doesn't have an excellent track record. Yes. But also of helping you, fucking don't you blame know. Slayer for your fucking terrible life choices. It's not their fault. Okay, it's a little dark. Fucking, I don't know. Go read a book. Don't fucking take that seriously. It's art. It's not supposed to be a fucking guide to your life. Jesus. Exactly. I will say though, something that is super garbagey about Slayer is that the next album that they had after this. Oh, wait, no, ew, gross. They referenced this in it? They put newspaper clippings of this as their album art, which is disgusting. Ew, I don't like that. And I know it's them being like street cred. And I'm like, just don't, don't be disgusting. 
it's an incredibly poor taste. I think that goes without saying yes. It's incredibly poor taste. Yeah. And whatever, you lost, you know, you won the lawsuit. The lawsuit got thrown out fine. This is a fucking family whose daughter was brutally murdered. Just be like, hey, it's not my fault. I get it. You're going through it. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Nothing but love and light your way, man. Don't fucking add that as your album art. That's fucking garbage shit. That is really garbage. I did not realize their lyrics were also so blatantly necrophilic. Yeah, big time. Okay. Big time. And they got like a song called like Postmortem and it's the same type of shit. It's They're really into it apparently. I mean, I love Living Dead Girl by Rod Zombie. So like- Sure. Uh, no judgments, but- I. It's not quite that on the nose. Yeah. <sighs> that was rough. Grab yourself a cocktail. Treat yourself to some candy, some ha- Halloween candy in a cocktail, girl. Yes. I love that. I will. And I'll treat myself to Jennifer's body, which ends the way I would prefer that this story ends, which is her getting revenge on all the pieces of shit who tried to fucking sacrifice her to Satan. Well, here's the thing. If it is true what quantum physics says, it's that we kind of live in... Uh, there's infinite realities where there's infinite, uh, like us, like, and we're all living in like different, trying to explain quantum physics, not going great. But so there's like infinite universes, infinite realities where we have like infinite lives or like different scenarios. So why don't we go to bed thinking that in one of these quantum fields, Elise is actually living out her Jennifer's body best dreams? Yes. And murdering these motherfuckers. Yes. That's the universe I want to live in, Monique. Yeah. So that's, I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe in that, that alternate reality. The quantum physics tells me it's possible. Yes. So science. Science. (laughs) (laughs) Or 50-50 chance it's all simulation. None of it's real. This is the only time I'll allow it, Amy. It's the only fucking time. It's Halloween. I have to like traumatize (laughs) you a little bit, Monique. A little. It's the only time I'll allow it because then it means that none of this happened at least. Right? I console myself with that sometimes. I know it's weird, but sometimes I'm like, you know what? Take a deep breath. This could all just be somebody's fucking version of Sims. This could be Sims 5000 right here. (laughs) I mean, and you told me about fucking ghost dogs and shit, so I guess so. Ghost dogs. Oh, yeah. They were real cute. You can still pet them. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's all that matters. I love it. I love you so much. Thank you for your story. That definitely fucked me up. I love you. Uh, Thank you for your story. That definitely fucked me up more, obviously. But happy motherfucking birthday. Thank you. This week. By the time this comes out, it will have been your birthday. Yes. Happy Halloween and happy two-year anniversary of doing this crazy bizarro show. All the things. It's our... Uh, October's the best month, girl. Yes. It's the trifecta where it's our triumvirate here. Yeah. And thank you guys for listening over the last two years to this bizarro weirdness that we put, <laughs> that we put out every week. Uh, this is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. If you don't follow the show on the gram, you should. We're at another fucking horror podcast. You can find me, Monique, at Pin Up Girl Mo. You can find me, Amy, at Lobotomy, and that's Lobot, period, Amy. 
Every sixth episode, we do a True Listener Tales episode where we read your crazy stories. So if you have something and you want to send it in or you just want to say hi, email us at anotherfuckinghorrorpodcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. Guys, we're so obsessed with you. Happy Halloween. Keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.